Kia ora, my name is Mark Easterbrook and you're listening to Going West Audio. For your enjoyment, education and inspiration, we've opened up our archives, queued up the tapes and unearthed the best oratory, discussion and performance from 25 years of the Going West Writers' Festival. In this episode, from 2008, Sarah Lang and Carlo Miller joined David Larson to talk about juggling parenthood with creative work in a session entitled Writing in the Night Kitchen. Against quite stiff resistance, I've asked Nicola, who put the session together, to explain where it came from. Nicola Strawbridge, the Associate Programmer. Good morning. Um, When Murray and I started looking at um, books and writers for this year, um, I came across Sarah Lang's wonderful new collection, Coming Up Roses. And by some great good fortune, I went on to meet her about two weeks later at the Mount Albert Playgroup, and we were both there with our small boys. And she told me about her website, and so I went to check it out, and I was um, doubly impressed. Not only was she a writer, but she was a craftster and an illustrator and a graphic novelist and so many other wonderful creative things. And so I thought, wow, we've got to somehow work this into the session. And I knew that Carlo had agreed to be the Kurnow reader, and so I started thinking, well, Carlo's got small boys as well, and there must be some connection here that we could um, work on. And so I started Googling Carlo, and I came across a blog she'd written on Huia Publishers' um, website, and she called it The Night Kitchen. And she confessed in the first paragraph that um, she was working at The Night Kitchen because she didn't have any childcare because she'd recently relocated. And the light went on and I thought, great, the night kitchen, Morris Sendak, these two women could get together and perhaps talk about um, what it means to be a writer, a creative person, while also parenting small children. So there was the genus of the idea. So I hope you enjoy the session. And then, of course, um, we needed a wonderful chair. And each year that... um, David Larson comes along to the festival, he makes a point of saying in his bio that he is homeschooling his kids. And I was like, aha, there's a man who understands and he could be the perfect glue to bring these two women together. And um, he's confessed recently, I think in this year's uh, programme bio notes, that the reason that he homeschools his kids is because people just um, can't be trusted to teach the correct use of the apostrophe. So I'm sure he could elaborate. (laughs) Anyway, I hope you enjoy it. Please welcome Carla Miller, David Larson and Sarah. I keep hearing these blanks. To the stage, Sarah Lang. And we're going to, this is a slightly different session in as much as instead of talking and asking people if they have questions, David's asked that we keep an open mic. So if questions pop up during the um, during the conversation, please let us know. We'll pass you the microphone and we'll deal with questions on the spot rather than waiting to the end. Thank you very much. No one has ever described me as the glue holding two women together before. <laughs> so thanks for that, Nicola. As I was driving out here this morning, I found myself trapped behind a car with one of those baby on board stickers in the rear window. Those stickers used to really, really irritate me. I used to think, you know, I don't actually have a baby on board, but please don't kill me anyway. (laughs) Then I acquired a baby of my very own. And um, this particular baby had the unfortunate habit of screaming whenever he was placed in a car. He once screamed all the way from Napier to Wellington. It's a solid three hours. 
And if you think that you can't drive from Napier to Wellington in three hours, you've just never been sufficiently motivated. <laughs> and that was when I realised that baby on board actually means, warning, driver may be functionally insane. <laughs> so this is the baby on board session. And in the spirit of the occasion, we have decided that there should be lots of interruptions. Um, and that we're basically going to make it up as we go along. Uh, the interruptions are your job. Uh, we would like to run this as an open mic session. We're not going to have questions at the end. We're going to have questions whenever anybody feels like asking them. So the mics are out there somewhere, and they're live. So stick up your hand anytime you want to ask a question. If I feel that you're doing it too often, I'll shut you down. Um, but otherwise, just assume that you're welcome to butt in. Uh, and Carlo and Sarah are essentially going to introduce themselves because that makes my life easier. Um, and they're going to read when they feel like it. And we're just going to chat. And if that completely fails to work, well, that's parenting. <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, actually, I did have a thought that, about the whole interruption thing. Is that um, this morning I was trying to figure out what I was going to read, and um, I was reading them my little excerpts to Jonathan and Otto and Gus. And um, right in the very first paragraph, there was a biscuit. And um, as soon as I said the word biscuit, Gus started going biscuit, biscuit, biscuit. <laughs> so um, I kept on reading, and Jonathan fetched a biscuit, and then we figured out that the reading took three minutes. And yeah, so that was kind of the whole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that sounds so familiar. Yeah, but, uh, but I was actually, I was, oh, yeah, I am Sarah Lang, and um, I actually almost feel, I've, I'm not entirely sure how I should introduce myself, but um, other than I'm a writer and I'm up here in front of you, so. I That's actually <laughs> all you need to say, Sarah. I'm yeah. sorry, I didn't mean that you had to say anything formal. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's good. Yes, but no, but I, well, actually probably the whole biscuit thing as well is that I was quite pleased that, you know, my children are actually that what I'm writing, my children can actually divine some meaning from what I'm actually writing as well. And, you know, that this is the first step that they can see I write about biscuits and then maybe they'll, you know, at one stage might want to read a little bit more. And <laughs> Yeah. As you were talking, I was just thinking about all the biscuits that have been stuck to my poetry books um, <laughs> in between, you know, and you're trying to turn up and be semi-glamorous and look sort of professional and then there's all this just mank stuck to your things and dribble and trying to open it without like you know all the juice spill between pages and yeah my name is Carlo and I am a poet and I prepared a little bit for this and uh, there was this quote by Alice Walker actually just looking for biscuits oh yeah <laughs> um, which says because women are expected to keep silent about their close escapes I will not keep silent and I just think that, especially while you're mothering, when you're pregnant, quite often there are big, small children, that part of our lives often isn't written about because we just don't have the opportunity to write. And um, even, yeah, there are unnatural silences in our literary world because of all of that busyness of looking after small children. And, and I think, um, yes, I, I like it that I'm not silent about that and that some of that experience has made its way onto the page. So I was um, thinking about when I started writing in earnest, um, 
I mean, I've always, I was, I've been always written, but um, I actually started really writing in earnest when I found out that I was pregnant with my first son because I thought, oh my goodness, my life is going to be over. My life is going to be over. I must write that novel. So I kind of wrote it in this <laughs> frenzy in between, you know, going to see the obstetrician and, you know, like I can't, every night I would kind of like write, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, actually, yeah, hundreds of words. I was going to say hundreds of pages, but I get on stage and I start to exaggerate. So you have to kind of pull <laughs> things out of it. Um, but um, yeah, so I kind of, Actually, that's probably it, really. <laughs> so you started writing when you... You basically started writing when you, when you knew that you were about to have this incredibly time-consuming, emotional-consuming, transformative experience. That's really, really interesting. I mean, I can imagine that would yeah. be the time when you might think, as um, I did myself, in fact, oh... Well, maybe I'll put that whole part of my life off. Yes, a well, decade I mean, or I kind two. of actually—I think I was actually um, trying to put the whole having the baby part off because I think, as I mentioned in my bio, I didn't actually investigate mountain buggies and I didn't buy any nappies and I didn't, um, you know, like do all of that other kind of hardcore nesting preparation that everybody else does. I thought, what I must do is I must get my novel finished. And in fact, I went into hospital um, because I had high blood pressure and um, the baby was going to be induced. It was 37, 36 weeks, and I was sent to hospital. And I was like. Somebody bring me a laptop. I haven't finished my first part. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, my mother, who's in the audience, she was um, left with the task of going and buying the nappies, the change table, and all of those things that I ought to have done, rather than thinking I have to have my first draft of my novel. And, you know, and incidentally, the, um, the novel was written in such a panic and, um, and then sort of like finished during the first six months of um, my son's life. And I think that the, yeah. It never was actually necessarily successful, but I suppose it kind of showed me that I could actually complete a novel or a piece of writing while having children. And in fact, my writing life wasn't over as soon as I had my first child. So, I think the night kitchen is a really, really lovely image um, to frame this session around. Because, I mean, on the one hand, it is the Morris Sendak book, which I just love to bits. The night kitchen is this amazing zone of wild, unleashed creativity where there's activity going on and it's always very, very busy and there's lots and lots of people and there's lots of things happening. And on the other hand, the real night kitchen, our night kitchens, I suppose, are these communal zones that have fallen quiet and perhaps <laughs> places that you might kind of create a little isolated island of silence in which yeah. to write in the midst of a very busy life. And I wanted to ask you both, um, is it like that? How do you write, just as a matter of, of practicality? How do, you, mm. how do you fit it in? Mm. Well, I'm quite lucky being a poet in a way because poet, poetry, poems, fit into very small spaces, whereas a novel requires a lot of discipline and planning and, and you sort of have to know where you're going and that frightens me. <laughs> With a poem, you don't necessarily, and they're small enough to fit into my small spaces. So I can write a poem on the back of a docket when I suddenly, you know, pull over and think, oh, I've got to capture this down before I lose it. And then three or four hours later, I might be able to then find the time to type that onto the laptop and save it. And then maybe three days later, I might have time to go and edit and play with it. And so poetry is just the kind of medium that fits into very small spaces that you steal, really. Yeah. Um, 
Yes, well, my, my writing process, it sort of fluctuates depending on, you know, whether it's school holidays or not school holidays, or um, yes, whether I've got paying work on or um, not. So, yeah. so um, I do go through little kind of periods in which I wake up at 5.30 in the morning and try and write. But actually, I think I don't normally do that because I'm not really a morning person, I think, because um, mm. I was listening to David yesterday at the um, Nigel Cox session, and in fact, I started waking up early after I read Phone Home Berlin, and I read about how he woke up at 5.30, and I thought, I'm so lazy, I'm so I'm just <laughs> sleeping, I can't write it. So, um, so I think maybe for about six weeks, or maybe a month, <laughs> I, I woke up at 5.30, but um, then I kind of slipped back to my, my old ways of just sort of like fishing it around and yes, um, and I've been very lucky over the past six weeks that I've had a residency and um, and my mother has been very generous and she's helped out um, looking after the children so I've had like an extra amount of concerted time where I can really concentrate on writing. I read that same Nigel Cox passage and was completely daunted by it um, and that where, where he talks about um, writing better um, when writing is not the only thing that he's doing, mm. um, writing out of this kind of ferment. Um, but at the same time, he, he kind of describes it as a monastic sort of exercise. I mean, he likes to have lots going on. He likes to have lots going on. Um, but he had to create this space of silence in order to be able to write, which involved getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning. Um, yeah, do you, are you able to write at all um, when there's someone behind you pottering around who might at any moment kind of pull on your jersey and say, I need this, I need that? In response to that, I'd almost like to read a poem, if you don't mind. Would I be allowed to, David? We no, talked about no. this. Um, we actually, we frown on reading it going west. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, apologies, it's a bit of a long one, but I wouldn't read any more this length, I promise you. Um, just in answer to that question. <laughs> um, yeah. It is quite long, apologies, but I promise I won't hog time after this. Actually, right? could you apologise afterwards when okay. it turns out that we all, all hate right. it? <laughs> this poem is called Victory to the People. Nicolassi is born. One, I am pregnant, four and a half weeks to go, and I am buying internet airline tickets for a friend whose mother is very sick and has no hospital to go to. All the staff in Ha'abai are on strike. I put a one-way ticket from Tonga on my credit card. She does not need a ticket to go back. I am pregnant, four weeks to go. My husband calls from Tonga to say there is much talk of war and yesterday at Bangai City it was said that today was a good day to die. Three, I am pregnant, three and a half weeks to go and I am speaking carefully and cautiously like someone with little confidence in their own authority from my mother's house in Palmerston North on national radio about what is happening in Tonga. Four, I am pregnant, three weeks to go, and I am writing a letter to the Prime Minister, ours, not theirs, for someone else to sign. I sip a decaf trim flat white as two cousins fight over coffee and caramel slice in a cafe about the strike 
and what is right and what is wrong and which of the other cousins is the one who is really brainwashed. <laughs> Five, I am pregnant, two and a half weeks to go and we are all here in the Farekai of the Marae at the University of Auckland, denied access to the Whale Pacifica because the meeting was too political. We sit in the kitchen of the Tangata Whenua digesting the words of the striking workers from Tonga. After the cultural brokers postulate and translate their own version of what was said, and the political ponies kick up their back heels and take up all the time, after the self-promotional community leaders, who all hate each other, strut their savvy, and the familiar loopy fruits interrupt in that familiar, annoying and inappropriate way with talk of socialism, fat cat union bureaucracy, hidden genealogical connections and Polynesian conspiracy theories hidden in the vowels of our language, the workers are each given four minutes to speak. After all our talk about hearing it from the horse's mouth and the need to ask questions, it becomes clear that what they have to say is already deeply known. I am pregnant, two weeks to go, and I am counselling friends via cell phone who are organising the march down Queen Street, and counselling friends via cell phone who are trying to stop it. Seven, I am pregnant, one and a half weeks to go, and I am emailing my aunt to show her that the strikers are calling for her head. And to say that I love her, she has worked for the government for almost as long as I have been alive. Eight, I am pregnant, one week to go, watching video footage of what's happening in Tonga in a Samoan church in South Auckland. One prince tells another to clean up his mess. A princess walks through the mud to her people. Lowering herself, the people lift her higher. Nine, I am pregnant, three days to go. I am marching in the sun, holding a sign the whole way up Queen Street. Peace and fairness in Tonga. The words are dripping. My muscles strong from carrying my one-year-old son, the other swinging in my belly. Ten, I am pregnant, one day to go. I have a secret agenda. I have an agenda hidden behind my ribs. The agenda that is agendaless, the mother of all agendas. <laughs> Eleven, Nicolasi, victory to the people, is born. The tugging is the least of my worries. <laughs> <laughs> That makes me want to ask about another aspect of writing as a parent and of writing in general, obviously, which is the extent to which you allow your life, your family's life, your children's life into your writing. Mm. Um, in specific detail and, you know, in other ways. I think that we should let Sarah read her first story that I was asking her to read, so then we have a context of Sarah's writing as well before we go there. Am I allowed to boss you around like that? No, you're, <laughs> you're absolutely not. Sorry. <laughs> I just feel it's biased now because I've read and you haven't, and they need to hear that story before he asks that question. But by special request. <laughs> yes, please. <clears throat> 
And mine is, I have to apologise too, because mine is possibly even longer than um, Carlo's poem. So I'll, <laughs> Maybe. I'll apologies. Apologies. That's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, although I did time it with my children this morning, and um, none of, they didn't actually listen to this one, which is probably quite good since it was all about them. So, yeah, there we go. So, this one, this here, this See, story right. here is um, right. actually. It's actually about the birth of my first son, and um, I mean, mostly I write something, you know, like pretty fictional. But, but I have to say that um, actually, I just was reading the Swings and Roundabouts um, collection of poetry, which um, you've, have you got? You've got poems in there. But Emma Neal, um, and and she said in her forward um, that you know childbirth is was the single most. She thought. Um, that the death of her father would be the most changing aspect in her life, but in fact, childbirth was the aspect of her life that transformed her the most, which she found completely surprising. And I suppose, I suppose, you know, like I've found, you know, having children quite transformative, in a way. And um, and uh, yeah, so I kind of like wrote about the actual, <laughs> the actual instant of it. Um, the, don't worry, not the actual childbirth bit. But, um, <laughs> I have a poem here about actual childbirth, uh-huh. on which we could move on to. But anyway, okay. <laughs> um, afterbirth, it's Good Friday when you wrench your way into the world and lie on the delivery table, your eyes closed. Your head is a hairball dug out of a drain, your skin smudged with wax and blood. Everything is closed, all the shops and the museums, the sushi bars and the veterinary clinics. Even the churches have bolted their doors and I have a song in my head that won't go away about dying on Good Friday, holding each other tight. They lie you on my chest and you huff and rustle like a chip packet and still you won't open your eyes. I don't believe you have any. I want to peel back your lids with my thumb because I saw you on screen when you were telecast from space and there was nothing there only dark hollows. Your head is scabbed from when they scraped your skin to test your pH level. And I think of the bear I baptised myself to make my hair silky and balanced, a perfect 5.5. The paediatrician says your lungs are like a bag that won't fully inflate, and that's why you're making that funny noise. I remember the mince pies I had for school lunches, the loud bang the brown paper would make when popped. If you don't stop making that noise, you'll be taken away from me. You'll be put in a plastic carton in the sandwich shop of half-made babies. Your lungs have quieted, so you're returned to suckle. And I ask your father, does he have eyes? (laughs) Yes, he says. I don't believe him, and you won't drink, so a woman is called to help. She has a cloche of white curls and glasses on a gold chain, and she describes my breasts as meat patties into your lips as the split bun. I squashed the burger into your mouth. (laughs) But still, you won't drink. So she harvests the colostrum with a syringe, drops it into your mouth. She says that I'm to take off all your clothes and lie you on my bare chest to snuffle your way up to my breast when you are ready. I try that when I'm returned to the ward, pushed in my bed because my legs have been deadened. But the midnight midwife is angry at me for letting you get cold, and she confiscates you, sealing you in the nursery sandwich carton. She is so angry at me, she lets me go to the bathroom by myself. And when I spill blood all over the white tiles, I have to mop it up with towels thinned with bleach. I tell her I need you back to breastfeed, but she's already given you a bottle of formula. 
I try to express colostrum for later and she pinches her lips and purses my nipples, telling me I'm doing it all wrong. She squeezes out a few drops and says there's nothing more there. I have nothing, not even a baby. I lie in my green room with the clock that ticks loudly enough to remind you of my heartbeat. I look at the full moon through the curtain crack, but there is no cow jumping over it, and I still haven't seen your eyes. I giggle at my wrists, which bleed from catheter wounds on Good Friday. I cry because there are no flowers for us, and your father has gone home. I don't sleep until you're returned with a warning. Don't you go taking his clothes off again. He doesn't have any fat on him to keep him warm. I have you all to myself now, 40 hours after they first applied the gel to make you come early. You didn't want to come at all, and still, you shiver and peep, scratched by the cotton and wool, not fooled by the clock. I rise on my half-dead legs and look at you, wondering whether you're really mine. You open your eyes and look back. Thank you, Sarah. I actually think that completely obviates the need for my question. I mean, the answer is obviously how much of your life do you allow into your writing? All of it. <laughs> <laughs> but not all of the time. <laughs> <laughs> and how do you judge that? I mean, do you ever find yourself wanting to put your children into your writing and thinking, no, actually, for one reason or another, it would be good for the writing, but it wouldn't be good for them or it wouldn't be good for me? I think they can't um, help but be, um, yeah, they can't help but slip into your writing because they are always around you. So, I mean, I kind of find that although my children don't directly appear in my writing, they sort of appear in other forms and little things that they say sort of suddenly spring into, you know, other characters' mouths. But actually, I mean, I read, <laughs> I remember reading a Jodie Peacolt book, and I just have to have a disclaimer because I really don't like Jodie Peacolt, but I know lots of people probably do, but I just have to state my position here. Um, and it was all about a father who went and wrote about his daughter and he'd killed her off with cancer or something. I can't, actually, I might be wrong, but I know that he'd killed her off with leukaemia and, and I think that was like the, you know, the, one of the big cruxes of the book is how wicked a father who is a writer could use his daughter and kill her off with cancer. And yeah, it was kind of this big ethical kind of... Yeah, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> yeah. Yes, with apologies to Jodie Pico fan, fans in the audience, that does sound very Jodie Pico. <laughs> hmm, yeah, um... I was about to say something incredibly relevant and insightful, and it's temporarily gone. Carlo, say something. We don't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, I get yeah, no I respect. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm just. I, I, that's a really interesting question. I've, I kept. There is an expectation when you're a poet that you would write poems about. Your children. I mean, I did have a lot of people who knew that I'd had babies say, "Well, you know, where are your where are your baby poems?" And and that they are not necessarily so forthcoming. In fact, I didn't re write a single poem while I was pregnant with my child, my first child, nothing for nine months. And then I wrote a poem about how he was the poem, um, which I shall read maybe since Please. since we've got this pause, which is for nine months, no words. A poem unfurling, this boy rooming, wooming within me, shark fin churning, salt seal squirming, sperm whale singing, seagull winging, for nine months, no words. A poem singing, churning, squirming, winging into being. 
I've remembered what I was going to say. Thank you, Carla. How witty and articulate is it going to be? Relevant. <laughs> and I've decided not to say it. <laughs> the reason that I asked specifically was that um, I don't know if you've read Anna Jackson's poems. Um, yeah, one of the strains that runs through her poetry is, um, is her family life. Yeah. Elvira, yeah. And as it happens, when she was first starting to write those poems, I was working in the daycare centre um, that her children were attending. And one of the poems is about Elvira's first day at the daycare centre. And I, I, I love those poems. They're my favourite part of Anna's writing, actually. But at the same time, it was very strange seeing these children that I knew passing into verse and also very difficult um, disintering my response to the poems as documentary evidence of these children's lives from my response to the poems as poetry. And I really couldn't tell to what extent I would have liked them had I not known the children that they were describing. Mm. Um, and I wonder if that's ever an issue for either of you. Um, because but, I think it's quite hard finding the right focal range when you're discussing something very personal yes. um, for people for whom it won't be personal. Well, interestingly enough, just a sort of a turnaround of that story is um, that I sent my children to, when I was living in Wellington, to the Victoria University crash um, a couple of days a week. And, um, they bought my book, one of them bought their book, my book, and I did actually have a mention about sending my children off to crash, well, you know, the character sending the children off to crash, and then the, you know, the crash people acting, asking all sorts of questions, like, is everything okay at home? That kind of sort of, and, um, and then I remember the, the woman saying to me, I bought your book. It was very interesting. And I thought, so what precisely did she think that that, I mean, because the, well, the, the, the story which is about sending a child off to crash is in fact completely fictional and you know like the social situation is mm. quite distinct from my own yeah. and the child yeah. is quite distinct from my own so that was kind of an imagined sort of pro using my own personal experience to imagine another experience. Yes. Mm. So um, The other reason I asked that question is that I have actually written journalism about my children. I've done it twice, I would not do it again. Um, it seemed like a very obvious and easy thing to do at the time. Um, my editor said yes go for it, I wrote the stories in a ferment of extreme discomfort, having not realised how much like public striptease it was going to feel, and public striptease using other people's bodies. Um, and it's very odd to go back and read those stories now. I still don't like them at all. Um, and I, yeah, um, I'm somewhat sleep deprived at the moment, which is very appropriate for a session on yeah. parenting. And one of the reasons is that I woke up at two o'clock this morning and thought, you know, it's possible that I will go out in public tomorrow and discuss my children. Um, and oddly, um, there are very few things that I will not discuss in public, but I find it quite disquieting to talk about my children um, for reasons that I do not plan to examine in your presence at this time. <laughs> um, but, I mean, that's, that's journalism, which is quite, quite different. different. Yeah, mm. and, um, you see, the thing is that with everything that I write about, I ha have to decide where my boundaries are. And, and my children, my, my boundaries about my love relationships, all sorts of things. And you might write poems that are really fictional, and still people will assume that that's your experience. So, and lots of my poems are really personal. And I kind of stand by that honesty of, you know, writing about what means something to me and what's kind of honest in my own experience. And yes. 
And yeah, this it's funny actually because at the Christchurch Readers Festival they had me out reading at schools and some of the I read some love poems and whoa, teenagers love love poems. And <laughs> <laughs> in fact these love poems now at Botany Down Secondary School are their curriculum for sixth form poetry. And I had all these questions from these teenage boys who had read every word saying, So did you love that guy? How old was he? <laughs> kind of like, really not literary questions. I was expecting questions. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was really strange. And then some, one of the young people, um, and I purposefully chose love poems that were written when I was quite young, because I know they're still having those sorts of experiences. How do you feel about writing such, you know, vulnerable sort of, uh, you know, obviously your own experience poetry? And I said, well... I can stand in front of you and I can read this poem about leaving Prince Charming behind, but I couldn't stand up in front of you and say, well, when I was 19, I had this boyfriend and his name was da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and then this is what happened, because not only is that not interesting to you, but um, that's too personal, but that's the gift of art and the gift of poetry is that I can write about those things that are explicitly personal, and through art they become transformed into something that's magically universal. And I find that when the poems that I really love to read are the ones that are intimate, really intimate. I don't necessarily know them, but they resonate with my own experience. And I think that's the gift of language, of metaphor, of heliarchy. And I, maybe you don't have that, that luxury afforded to you when you're doing straight journalism where you're confined to, they said this and da 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 da. Like, you know, I don't know. But when, when you're able to bring the imagination and metaphor and simile into it, it just suddenly makes those things possible. I bet for me, anyway. Mm. Yes, that rings true. And I think, yeah, there, there's a whole different set of issues with journalism. The problem with journalism is, the ex well, for me, is the extent to which one fictionalises things inadvertently, yeah. um, which is precisely what you're at liberty to do um, and can rejoice in doing in, yeah. in other forms. Sarah, I wanted to ask you something specific. Were you, were you about to leap in and say something? No, Sorry. no, no. no. Um, I... <laughs> Asking all these questions oh. about ways in which it can be negative. Does, question, does question. someone have a microphone? Oh, I was wondering where the questions were. Uh, Thank you. Is this on? Okay. Um, my name's Eleni. I just wanted to say, even in real life, I mean, I remember as a child, and certainly my children have reflected it back to me, is that they hate us talking about them, even in real life. Mm. There comes a point at which you have to shut up. <laughs> and, uh, yeah... So I think it must be a difficult transition as a writer and as a journalist even more so as to, yeah. Because I have only once in my life, there's a woman I work with who has children and I don't think she has grandchildren, but I swear to God, I've known her for 20 years, I know nothing about her children because she has taken that belief to the extreme that it's not her life. She has no right to speak about her children to other people that they don't know. I mean, I don't have that extreme belief, but yeah. It was interesting to me when I struck it, because I'd never struck it before in my life, yeah. Yeah, thanks for the comment, that's an interesting point. Um, responses? I mean, I, the project which I'm working on at the moment, it's kind of funny, funny um, now that I have older children, 
like there, there are children in there, but they're kind of like quite in the background. And I've kind of chosen to, you know, look at um, people's lives who are, at, you know, like kind of quite a different stage from the life that I'm in. So, yeah, I mean, I suppose, I suppose, um, you know, when I read, wrote that piece of work that I first, no, which I read before, that was, you know, like I was kind of right in the very thick of it. But, but quite often it's really difficult to write about things when you're right in the very thick of it. And, you know, quite often you need kind of some time to reflect and sort of like, yeah, fictionalise as well, to sort of kind of figure out how you can use your personal experience and transform it into fiction and, you know, something rather universal, something interesting and something that's distinct from yourself that isn't like an autobiography mm. or something, which is, yeah, so it's probably my response to that. <laughs> We have about five minutes to go. Uh, yeah. We have several questions. Let's start with the microphone is. Uh, right, go. Uh, hi, You're Carlo. Um, can I just quickly come back to what you said about reading love poetry in schools and, and being so you know, frank about your experiences? What I find, always find so beguiling about you, Carlo, <laughs> is that, no, truly, you're so open about, I just write from my experiences, and that's what it's about, whereas, I mean, I've heard dozens of, of young poets up on stage saying, oh, I write about my experiences, but it's not really about that. And, you know, I start, I start with something that's true and then I go into something that isn't true. And, you know, that's always a lie. You know, they're writing about something that's true and they're a little bit afraid to admit it. <laughs> they're kind of cloaking it in this layer of metaphor. But with you, it's so interesting that you're so um, able to just not feel the need to hide behind veils of, veils of fiction. I wondered, wow, that, how did you arrive? Is it just something that's just you and... You don't really feel the need to hide or um, to protect yourself, I guess what I'm saying? Or... I think I'm, I have learned over the years that I'm just one of those really ridiculously honest people that make a lot of other people uncomfortable because I've learned that people, other people aren't. I just don't... Un I think yeah. people respond really well to that. I don't know. Yeah, yeah it's true. She don't. told me I needed more lipstick before I went on stage, so I, went <laughs> so I really appreciated that. I appreciated that. She told me I looked dowdy. <laughs> I did not. That's a lie. I said that he's a man. He can get away with a black T-shirt and jeans. It doesn't matter what he wears. That's what I said. I'll spot the subtext. <laughs> <laughs> did we have another question? Um, in a way, we're talking about self-censorship, aren't we? And there's not just... When your children are older, you see, they can write songs and go into public and sing about you in your life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the other thing is, I was going to take it into a wider context, perhaps about your families, like the wider family, mm. like your husbands or partners or your wider whanau ainga. Mm. If mm. them, because they've got voice, they're adults, and mm. if in any way you feel that constrains you, writing what you want to say. Like waiting for someone to die or something? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, that's that's my point, I think, is that I've always been really conscious, especially being Tongan, and how many books do you know that are written by Tongans here in New Zealand? And so I remember having this conversation with Kōnei Halu Thaman, and she said, there's a new book out, it's called The Empire Strikes Back, and it's about Tonga, and it's all about the democracy movement. And she said, oh, it made me really sad. And I said, why did it make you sad? I thought, I read it, it was really interesting, and it's is it not true? Did they lie about what's happening in Tonga? And she said, no, they didn't lie. But how many books about Tonga are there? And I said, oh, I don't know. She said, less than what I can count on my fingers. And, and she said, and you know, I read that and I didn't feel proud to be a Tongan. 
She said, it, it just didn't make me feel malia. So I don't, it doesn't matter to me whether it was completely real or not. I just think, what do you put out there into the void? And so I think just, I have huge responsibilities as a, like someone from an ethnic minority who will be perceived as that voice. I have responsibilities as a wife, as an extended family member, as someone that carries another family's name. My, so whether I'm worried, my children are also just part of that stuff that I'm responsible to, and they're not the be-all and end-all of that responsibility. I'm connected to a number of people. Having said that, I do I do choose to, I do think the political is personal and I haven't got time to finish off on my last poem, have I? Because it's my, my best one. But we haven't got time. Murray is nodding in a very grim way. Of course we have. <laughs> we do? Yes. Excellent. Alright, um, I have the feeling that we've really only scratched the surface and um, we're really just kind of getting into gear. However, um, given how late we ended up running yesterday, let's not do it today. I think we do need to close down. So let's have that last poem. No, let's have a comment from Sarah. And then we'll have the last poem. Yes, Sarah, say something. Um, oh, I suppose one thing which I was thinking um, this morning is that um, actually having children has been really useful for my writing because I have this sort of constraint, this, this constant time constraint. So quite a lot of the kind of excess, you know, like going shopping and, you know, like going to all the art galleries. I love going to art galleries. But anyway, lots of that stuff has been sort of stripped from my life and and I look after children you know like prepare all the meals you know kind of do all the shopping and then I have this little kind of pocket of time and I have this sort of sense of urgency and I think I must write I must use every single minute of that pocket of time so I have this urgency about you know my work which I mean I think is probably probably mm. useful because I imagine if you know my time was you know like less constrained I yeah would possibly lack that external discipline or that kind of yeah yeah I think there's something very real in that. Mm. This is something that we didn't get into yesterday in the Nigel Cox session. I, I have this abiding belief that the reason his last book is so extraordinary um, is that he was dying when he wrote it. I mean, that's, that's mm. a harsh thing to think about in some ways, but he just finds another gear, much as I love mm. all of his other books. Um, and it's similar, I think, when you, when you know that... <laughs> Do it or you'll never do it. Um, you've got this much time, go for it. It, it produces something quite different, doesn't it? Mm. In, in all spheres of life, I think. Yeah. Mm. Okay, the poem which has been amped up too much now, but I'll still read it. It's called I Am Not a Placenta Mother. And um, this came about from Fiona Farrell, I think it was. We were doing a reading at Pottsmere and she said, Oh, so you must be a placenta mother. And I was like, <laughs> What the hell? How on earth would I fit being a placenta mother in with everything else that I'm doing? You know, um, no, I'm not. That's not part of I what I can do. I think Jennifer was a placenta mother at my place. Yeah, touch. and my placenta. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're palmy girls who went to Park Road Placenta. Okay, my mother is was not just a placenta mother. She's a kindergarten teacher. So, yeah, high expectations, a huge bar. Oh, anyway. I am not a placenta mother. I have walked through the valley of cracked nipples, lanolin and cabbage leaves on burning breasts. I have won pink ribboned medal for breast is best son, won booby prize for the other one, consolation boy who sucked soy from silicon. Yes, one child stretched my stomach, the other broke my back. But this speaks nothing of my egg-shaped world cracked open by teaspoon mouths. Little teeth 
growing against gums. Life is like that then, the split crack of soft flesh by something harder than you expected. Two birds, hand to mouth, at our unsteady four-legged table. Thank you all. That was fascinating, especially as someone who's never actually had children of my own. Um, it was quite intriguing. Thank you We're very much. We're all your children, Mary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the festival is your baby. Yeah. 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 Um, so thank you, David, Carlo and Sarah. And um, before we break for lunch, Naomi's probably got something to say about where we go from here. Thanks for listening to Going West Audio. You can subscribe to the podcast and our regular updates at goingwestfest.co.nz.